All right. So uh, Christmas is just nine days away. Whether we like it or not, it's coming. Uh, and that means that we only have three chances left before the big day to reflect together on the Christmas story. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, reflect on it this Sunday, next Sunday, and Christmas Eve. Hopefully you can join us for all three times. And this week, I thought it would be valuable to spend some time talking about one very important person in the Christmas story, uh, the mother, Mary. Any birth story would be incomplete without uh, giving attention to the one giving birth, right? So this morning, I want us to focus our attention on Mary and what we can learn from her. Now, I realize that when I use those words, let's focus our attention on Mary, that might make some of us a little bit uncomfortable because uh, many of us probably think that Mary gets a little bit too much attention in some branches of the church. Uh, the Catholic Church, if you grew up Catholic or maybe you're even Catholic now, you know uh, that they talk a lot about Mary and not just at Christmas, right? Uh, I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church, but I remember it was very strange to me when I would hear my Catholic friends talking about something called the Hail Mary. Uh, and I thought, well, why are they praying, why are they praying to Mary uh, rather than to, to God? That doesn't make sense. Now, to be fair to our Catholic friends, I've come to realize that uh, many Catholics don't consider uh, saying the Hail Mary as praying to Mary so much as asking Mary to pray for them on their behalf. So there's a, a subtle distinction there that if we are going to ever engage in a conversation with someone who thinks differently than us about Mary, it's appropriate to be aware of that and, and to know that. But even if that's true, uh, I do think that Mary gets an unreasonable amount of attention uh, in some branches of the church. And uh, I, I think that some people will spend so much time asking Mary to pray for them that they neglect to really pray to God themselves. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that's, that's good. And I think that many people fail to make the distinction between asking Mary to pray for them and actually praying to Mary. Um, maybe the people who have more refined theology are aware of that, but many of just the... the Ordinary folks don't make uh, that distinction. And whether they do or not, it seems to me that many people who, who say something like the Hail Mary assume that Mary has some sort of power to get them what they're asking for um, that, no, that nobody else does. And so they're relating to Mary as if Mary has this, this unique power. And I don't think God would want us to relate to Mary in that way. And I don't think Mary would want us to relate to her in that way. And I'm going to explain why uh, as we look at the text later, um, but hopefully it will make sense. Uh, officially, the Catholic Church has actually gone so far as to recognize uh, Mary as the Queen of Heaven uh, and to declare that she never sinned in her entire life. And I was like, is that really the case? So, uh, so I, I looked, looked up on it, and it is true. Uh, if you've ever heard the phrase, the Immaculate Conception, have you guys heard that? Um, I always assumed, maybe you have too, that the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Jesus. Right? Jesus is, was, was conceived uh, in a virginal way, so this is the Immaculate Conception. But actually, that's not true. In Catholic doctrine, the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Mary. 
uh, because they believe that in order for uh, a sinless Jesus to be born by Mary, Mary herself had to be sinless. And they, they don't believe that she was born of a virgin, but they believe that at the moment of conception, the Holy Spirit acted in some way to remove the stain of original sin from Mary so that she, she never had uh, sin in her life. Um, now, that doesn't make sense to me, and I, I don't <laughs> mean to be disrespectful uh, to our Catholic brothers and sisters, but I don't understand why Mary would have to be sinless in order to bear a sinless Jesus. And if, if she, she did have to be sinless, well, then it would seem that Mary's mother would have to be sinless to bear a sinless Mary, and so on all the way back to Eve. It, it seems to me that it makes sense that if we're going to start the sinlessness somewhere, it makes sense to start it with the incarnate God. Um, and, you know, if, if Mary was sinless, uh, why would Jesus' sacrifice be necessary? If people could actually be sinless, apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, why would he need to, to give his life on the cross? Um, if Mary was really sinless, why does she refer to God as my Savior? Which, which she does in the passage we're going to look at. So it really seems to me like it makes sense uh, to assume that the sinlessness starts with the incarnate God. Um, you know, if, if Jesus didn't need a sinless world in order to live a sinless life, I don't see why he would need a sinless womb in order to be sinless. Uh, Jesus is sinless because he is the incarnate God. I also think that if we were really supposed to talk about Mary on a regular basis and regard her as the sinless queen of heaven, I think the Bible would have more to say about her. Uh, there are four Gospels that talk about Jesus' life, um, and only two of them have the birth story, and only one of them really focuses on Mary's side of the story. So four Gospel accounts, Mary gets focused on in only one of them. And then if we look at the New Testament letters, there, Mary is not a topic of conversation. And you would think that at least one of these letters that was written to the early church, there would be some mention of veneration of Mary, honor of Mary, something like that. But it's just not there. So all that said, okay, if you are somebody who gets a little uncomfortable when I say let's focus our attention on Mary, just understand that I get it. I, I understand. And I probably share many of the same concerns that, that you share. But I think we have to be careful not to let the pendulum swing too far in the opposite direction. Uh, God gave Mary an incredible role to play. And she is a beautiful example to us. And it would be a mistake for us never to reflect on her example, especially at this time of year. I've heard it said, uh, Jesus is the only person in history who got to choose his mother, and he chose Mary. So <laughs> that's enough reason for us to ask, well, what can we learn from Jesus' choice of Mary as his mother? What does that tell us about God, and what can we learn from the example of the woman that he chose? So let's look at Mary's story. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 20. 26, excuse me. 
In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So let's stop for a moment. Now, if you're reading this, you might be wondering, well, why is Mary greatly troubled? This angel has just said good things, right? You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then Mary's response is anxiety, fear, distress. One doesn't seem to follow from the other, right? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly why Mary is greatly troubled, but I think we can figure it out. Uh, throughout Scripture, it is common for people to be fearful when they have a special encounter with the holy. Uh, you know, nearly every time an angel brings a message, the angel has to say, don't be afraid. It's okay. Calm down. <laughs> Uh, and a similar thing sometimes happened with Jesus. When people realized how holy and powerful Jesus was, they would feel afraid. They would get scared. One great example of this is when Jesus first calls Peter to be his disciple. Uh, Peter and some fishermen have been out all night trying to catch fish. They haven't been able to catch anything. And then Jesus shows up in the morning and he says, hey, you know, let your nets down again for a catch. And Peter's like, hey, we haven't caught anything for hours and hours, but if you say so, I'll let him down. He lets him down, and instantly the nets are breaking because they're filled with so many fish. The, they, they take all the fish out. They fill all the boats. Now, you would think they've been trying to catch fish, right? So they should all be really excited. <laughs> Peter should be like, this is going to be a great day at the market. We're going to make a ton of money. But that's not what Peter says. It says that he falls at Jesus' knees and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Because when we encounter the holy power of God, this God who can command nature and angels, it often provokes fear. And there's something very rational and even healthy uh, about that. Because when we become aware in this, in this clear way of this, this powerful God, we recognize, I am so much less powerful than this God. And we recognize that as sinful human beings, we are utterly dependent on the mercy of this God just to live every day, that if this God wanted to, he could just wipe us off the face of the earth. And when you see uh, the holy in a powerful way like that, it suddenly brings that home to you, that reality. And it's scary. So Mary is greatly troubled because she's encountering the holy, and that's frightening. And as a side note, I think her reaction is evidence that she is very much like us and that she's not a sinless human being. You know, if she was sinless, I think that once she came and had this encounter with the holy, she'd be like, huh, this is home. This is, I know this is what it, you know, this is what I want. This is what, this is, this feels like the, the air I breathe and the water I swim in, right? But no, it, it provokes fear. She doesn't feel completely at home. But anyway, uh, continuing in verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? All right, let's take a moment to notice Mary's response here. How will this be? I'm a virgin. I remember that when I was in high school, I went to a public high school, and a teacher was explaining what Christians believe about the Christmas story in one class. And she explained the virgin birth part of it, and one student, who I'm pretty sure had no background in the church, just said, that's so stupid. We know now that virgins can't give birth. You know, and she was like, the church has got to change its mind about this. This is just ridiculous. And, of course, she was, an expressing, she was expressing an attitude that many modern people have, which is basically those people in the Bible, they were unscientific. You know, they didn't know how the world works. They thought that, that virgin births were possible. And, you know, we have science now. And so we know that virgins don't give birth. Uh, but as you can see from this story, people knew how things worked, right? <laughs> how can this be? She says, I, I, I'm a virgin. I'm not going to have a baby because virgins don't have babies. And obviously Joseph was aware too because what did Joseph do when he found out that she was pregnant? First thing he started to do was plan, how am I going to divorce her? Because he knows how babies are made and he knows that he didn't have anything to do with that baby. So, yeah, we modern people, we know more about the details of how things work, but people in ancient times, they understood basic cause and effect, and they were fully aware that virgins don't have babies. And that is why God decided to do things this way, because it was dis a display of his power, and it was a way of declaring and showing the uniqueness of Jesus. No one else is like this. No one else has come in, into the world uh, like this. And people then were just as aware of how remarkable that was as we are today. So continuing in verse 35, the angel answered, well, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. Now, I want us to try and put ourselves in Mary's shoes right now. There's a couple of things that are important for us to remember about Mary. For one thing, she's young. Um, we don't know for sure how old she was, but we know that it was customary for uh, young Jewish girls to be betrothed to be married in their early teens. And so she's in the betrothal period right now, right? So she, she's betrothed, but she hasn't gotten married. So I found most estimates put her at about 15 when this happened to her. So she's young. Secondly, she's poor. And you might be wondering, well, how do we know that? Well, very interesting. After Jesus is born, eight days later, uh, Mary and Joseph do what you're supposed to do as a good Jew. You, you take your child to the temple, you consecrate your child, and you bring an offering on behalf of your child. And we're told that the offering that they bring is either uh, two doves or two young pigeons. 
And that's significant because in the Levitical law, it's said that when you have a child, you should bring a young lamb for an offering to the temple. Uh, but it, they know that not everyone's going to be able to afford that. So in the law, it says, but if you can't afford a lamb, bring either two doves or two young pigeons. And so Mary and Joseph, they can't afford the sacrifice of a lamb. So they are, they are young. Uh, Mary is young. Mary is poor. And also, she's in need of financial support. Uh, in, in the world that we live in today, it's uh, easier well, it's not, it's not easy, but it's easier for a, a single mom to have a source of income. But in those days, I mean, women were really dependent on either their husbands or fathers to provide for them, to provide financial support. And in this situation, Mary, the way that this baby is coming about, puts both of her sources of financial support in jeopardy. Right? Because Joseph might not want to financially support this baby because he knows it's not his. Right? And, and Mary's father might think, you know, Mary made a mistake and, and Mary should be supported by Joseph, but Joseph has left her because Mary betrayed her, uh, betrayed him. And maybe that's what the, fa the father is going to think, and then maybe the father's not going to want to support Mary. So Mary's in a tough spot here where the way that God is doing things puts her sources of financial support in jeopardy. So think about this, okay? If you're Mary, you're young, you're poor, and you need economic support, and the people you need it from might not want to give it to you after they find out that you're pregnant. Think of how scary that would be. And then look at the way that Mary responds. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I am your servant. May it be to me as you have said. In other words, okay. She doesn't protest. She doesn't argue. She just says, hey, whatever you think is best. That's incredible. You know, especially when we think about the difference between her and another hero of the faith, uh, Moses. Uh, hopefully some of us know the story about Moses. Uh, he, Moses uh, was somebody who had been brought up in Egypt. All the Israelites were in Egypt. The Israelites were under slavery. Moses had his own unique circumstances, but he was an Israelite in Egypt, and he fled from Egypt. And then God said to him, in a powerful way, he spoke to him, and he said, I want you to go back to Egypt, and you're going to tell the Pharaoh to set my people free, and you're going to lead them out of Egypt. And Moses said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. No, actually, he didn't say that. He, he said, I'm a bad public speaker. Could you send someone else? But Mary displays what I would call wholehearted submission to God. And just to reiterate, I'm not saying she's perfect. I'm not saying she's sinless, but her attitude here is praiseworthy. Right? It's admirable. Mary consents to all this, even though she knows this is going to change everything for her. And as anyone who has children knows, it changes everything to have a child, right? This is going to change her body. It's going to change her sleep schedule. It's going to change her plans. It's 
probably going to change your reputation. Probably going to change her relationship with her fiancé. We know now that Joseph stood by her, but that was due to miraculous intervention. He had an angel sent to him. So Mary's example should challenge all of us. And it should challenge us in a way that makes us a little uncomfortable because Mary forces us to ask, am I willing to let God change my plans? Am I willing to let him change my reputation if it's for his purpose? You know, I think if we're honest, most of us have a problem with wholehearted submission. Probably all of us. You know, most of us don't even like being interrupted when we're working on something or when we're watching TV. And Mary reminds us that God may want to interrupt our whole life plan. And the new plan he has for us, it may require a lot from us. It may require some sleepless nights. It may require pain. It may require uh, times of, of feeling exhausted. It may require patience. And it might require risking our whole reputation. It may mean losing respect in the eyes of the world. You know, wholehearted submission to God is not a fashionable thing. I don't think it's ever been a fashionable thing. And if we try to live a life of wholehearted submission to God, chances are some people are going to think that we're weird or naive or crazy. It's not fashionable. I'm reminded of how these days it's very common to hear people say, I'm spiritual, not religious. Right? You guys have heard that, right? Maybe you've even said it. I'm spiritual, not religious. And I think that sometimes when people say that, they mean something good. They mean something like, well, I'm not all about rules and regulations and laws. Uh, I'm about a, a real intimate connection with my creator. And if you mean it in that way, good. But I'm afraid that what a lot of people mean when they say, I'm spiritual, not religious, is, you know, I believe there's a God, but I'm really not interested in that God making any demands on my life. Um, I'm not interested in pursuing a life of submission, a life of obedience. I would like to maintain this vague sense that there's someone looking out for me and that things work out and, you know, maybe there's a good afterlife and all that. But this whole submission to God thing, this whole yielding my life to him, I'm not interested in that. That's for religious weirdos. You know, I prefer spirituality on my own terms. And Mary's example should be a reminder to us not to get caught up in that way of thinking about things, that attitude that dismisses humble submission to God as unfashionable or unpractical or unreasonable. Because whether or not our culture thinks that humble submission to God is weird, that's the attitude that is truly blessed. We're told that Mary is blessed among women, and I think that that, the root of her blessing is this, this attitude of humble submission to God. So let's look ahead a few verses and see uh, what we can learn, what else we can learn uh, from Mary's example. If we look down to verse 46, uh, this is a part where Mary sings a song. And uh, let's listen to what she says here. This is really beautiful. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Now, this is the longest quotation that we have from Mary in the Bible, by far. And what I want us to notice about it is that her, her focus is on God, not herself. Uh, I counted this up. Uh, she says me or my five times, and she says he or his 13 times. And even when she is referring to herself, most of the time it's because she's saying that she's worshiping God, right? My soul glorifies the Lord. Um, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So I can't help but think that if Mary is aware today of how much attention and veneration um, is, is given to her and how central of a part she plays in, in many people's spiritual lives and spiritual devotions, I, I just have a hard time believing that she would be happy about that. Because as her words show us, Mary's not interested in having the attention and the glory on her, but on turning and giving the glory to God. Now, she does say, generations are going to call me blessed. That's true. But thinking of somebody as blessed is not the same as thinking of them as the sinless queen of heaven, right? There's a difference there. And we should regard her as blessed, no doubt about that. But even after Mary says, generations will call me blessed, she, she shifts all her attention in the rest of the song to what God has done and acknowledging that God is ultimately the author of all these good things. So I would say paradoxically, we actually honor Mary less when we honor her too much because we don't heed her example. Now there's one other thing that I want us to notice in Mary's song. If I were to describe the big idea of her words, it would be this. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. Pretty much every line in this song is somehow expressing this idea. God humbles the rich and exalts, oh, God exalts, sorry, exalts the humble and humbles the proud. Um, now, why is Mary so inspired to say this right now? It's not like there's been some sort of political revolution in that moment. The reason is because she knows she is a young, poor Jewish girl who has next to no power or influence at all. And yet God has chosen her to be the mother of the man whose kingdom will never end. The mother of the prophesied and long-awaited Messiah. And Mary thinks if this is how God operates, he must really value humility a lot. 
You know, last week, we finished our Seven Deadly Sins series with the sin of pride. And we talked about how bad pride is characterized by three things. Hopefully, you remember what they are. Uh, self-obsession, thinking you're the center of the universe, always thinking about yourself. Two, uh, an attitude of superiority, thinking that we matter more than everybody else, that we're better than everybody else. And three, a need for others to validate our self-obsession and our sense of superiority. And we, we talked about how this kind of pride is so toxic. It's, it's a force that just rips apart relationships and it torpedoes peace and unity in churches and in communities and families. And, and God calls us to humble ourselves, right? He calls us to care about the needs of others, not just the needs of ourselves. He calls us to let go of this arrogant idea that we were better than everybody else, that we matter more. And he calls us to stop expecting other people to give us glory and praise uh, and to be open to criticism. And Mary is an example of how God loves to honor and bless humility. Because in Mary, we see, we see somebody who no one would mistake for the center of the universe being called to bear the center of the universe in her womb. How crazy is that? And so we have to realize how much God values humility. I talked about last week how the nativity scene, when we see the infant Jesus, that should be a reminder to us of the radical humility of God. Well, this should be a reminder to us of the radical humility of God, too, and how high of a value he places on it, that he would pick this humble, young, poor Jewish girl to be his mother. And so here's what I want us to to think about this week. Here's what I really want to challenge us to reflect on. If God loves humility this much, am I really a humble person? Is our church a church that has a humble spirit? It's important. Are we the kind of people and the kind of church that says like Mary did, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Because if, if we want to experience true blessing and, and the abundant life, it starts with being able to say those words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your radical humility, which sets us free and which bridges the gap of separation between us and you. Lord, we thank you that you exalt those who are humble, that you lift up those who are poor in spirit. And God, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about Mary. I pray that you would help us to uh, take from her example uh, good things, and to let those things influence the way we live. Lord, I pray you would help us to know what it means to have that attitude of, of humble submission, wholehearted submission, that says, Lord, I am your servant. I want to do what you ask. And I pray that we would experience the richness of blessing that comes from, from living that way. In Jesus' name, amen.